VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today in the studio, it is The Times' very own Molly Hudson. And coming up, we're going to hear who Molly has picked for her team of the decade. Mm, Cryptic. And look back at the first Merseyside derby of the season. First, though, we're off to Old Trafford as Jose makes his return. Now, a year ago, Jose Mourinho left Old Trafford on the receiving end of a 3-0 defeat to his new side Spurs. The then Manchester United manager left his press conference after that game screaming, respect, respect, at a room full of journalists whilst waving three fingers. Fast forward a year and he made his return to Old Trafford, but it wasn't the winning way Jose wanted to return on Wednesday night, though, as his new Spurs side lost 2-1 and a marvellous Marcus Rashford was on form for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. Molly, this was a match that once again has shown the potential of what Rashford has to be a United great. Definitely. I think everything last night he touched either went in the goal or produced an incredible save. Um, <laughs> he, he just played so well and I think he's one of those players that he needs that bit of confidence and I think he started so well in the game mm. and that helped him going forward. I think it probably played into his hands I think as Mourinho said after the game that against the bigger sides he probably has more room on the counter-attack and there's there's kind of less pressure on him in a way to to break through a defence that's probably sitting back um, which definitely helped him but I think I think Solskjaer maybe said that it was his best performance um, at least under hit him mm. and I think I think it was he was just incredible and he could have could have had a hat-trick um, but yeah, he just played really well. And I think it made such a big difference to United knowing that they had that game changer because you, you watch them a lot and you're waiting for that kind of person. Obviously, Pog was out and they, they've kind of missed that real star quality at times this season. Mm-hmm. And he definitely provided that last night. It was a, a terrific performance. And, and Gregor, a terrific performance that United needed, that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer needed as well because he came into this match under a, a cloud, let's say, of, of pressure. And if he had lost that game last night to his predecessor, <laughs> I mean, the inquests would have begun, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think it's kind of it was key that he he wasn't shown to be kind of a naive coach and sort of in the midst of a a, a bit of a kind of a legend of management, even though Mourinho's time at Manchester United ended badly. Mm. Um, and I think you know I don't think it was really a game that was won by tactics per se. I think it was both managers sort of. Uh, hinted towards it was a kind of one in emotions and the fact that Manchester United were 
so fast out the blocks, so much energy, full of kind of full of running. That that front three of of James and and Rashford and Greenwood and with Lingard behind them, youth, pace, skill, and when they're on their on their day, um, they're ham- going to be ample for any team any team in the league. So, and Spurs on the other hand were kind of looked a yard off the pace. Um, so it was thoroughly deserved and, and obviously a huge relief for, for Solskjaer. He would be delighted today. Yeah, a huge win for Manchester United. And the Times Manchester football writer Paul Hurst was at Old Trafford on Wednesday. He joins us now on the pod. And, and Paul, a lot of focus on this match would have been on Jose Mourinho returning. As we've already said, it, it didn't go his way. Deli Ali was on the score sheet last night, albeit that they lost. Um, he accused his teammates of arrogance. What do you think he meant by that? I just, I just thought he, he meant that they were, they kind of thought that United would be a bit of a, bit of a pushover. Really, they'd obviously seen the recent results, uh, the draw against United, uh, Sheffield United, the draw against Aston Villa, and the defeat to Astana, and thought that United were there for the taking. Um, but you know, Mourinho was right. Mourinho said that United do raise their game for, for big matches um, at Old Trafford, and they've got quite a good record against the top six this season, or the, the big teams. You know they've beaten Chelsea twice. Um, uh, they, you know, they've drawn with Liverpool. They beat Leicester as well. Um, so you know they, they certainly up their game for the for the big opponents, and and they did last night. And you could just tell that the Spurs were sort of expecting a, a lethargic Man United, whereas the, the team that came out were really, really quick out of the blocks, really went at uh, Spurs from from the off. And that, that front three, as, as Gregor said. You know, when they're on the game, when they're running at you at pace, it's, it's really difficult to defend against them. Well, the Tottenham midfielder, just to clarify what he said, uh, said this, we, we knew what we had to do. We had to match their energy. We lost the game not by them outplaying us, just attitude. We weren't hungry enough and we were slow to every second ball, losing 50-50s. Maybe it was a little bit of arrogance and overconfidence. You have to have confidence and arrogance in games like this, but have to use it in the right way. Um, what do you think his boss, his new boss, Jose, would have made of those comments, Paul? Well, I know the, he, Jose Mourinho is the king of arrogance, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, but yeah, he, he, he kind of took him on board and said, yeah, that's that's what happened. You know, they were too complacent. And there's nothing wrong with a bit of arrogance if, if you can back it up on the on the pitch. Um, but, you know, it, it was a bit of a reality check for Spurs, wasn't it? You know, that they had won their previous three matches and were looking in great nick um, going forward, certainly. But defensively, uh, they conceded, um, I think, six goals in those three matches before United. So the warning signs were there, and you know, as soon as as soon as United started running at them, particularly Rashford, you know, they looked they looked um, very shaky at the back. You know, especially Vertonghen as well at left back. He just looked completely um, hopeless up against Daniel James, who had one of his best games for United. Um, so I think if, if Mourinho's looking to improve that team in some area, in, in one area, it won't be in defence. The way things soured for Jose Mourinho at uh, United, do you think that would have been extra motivation for those United players to get one over their former boss? <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, they, they were. They all shook Jose's hand at the end of the match, and we we heard the tale that Jose went into the uh, home dressing room afterwards and shook their hands again. Uh, just in case it was needed for a second time, um, and, but they there were a few players who didn't play that well under him that would have been motivated to to do well. You know, Rashford certainly is started hitting his peak under Solskjaer. He kind of felt he was a bit lost under under Mourinho. Um, but you know, certainly 
Pogba and Shaw were the two that he kind of called out uh, the most during his time at United, and they weren't playing yesterday. Um, but I think a lot of them were playing for Solskjaer as well. You know, particularly players like McTominay, they they really put a shift in. Really, kind of knew that they're, you know, he knew that his manager was under the cosh and wanted to to play well for him. So it was it was as much about playing for Solskjaer and playing for you know their own pride and prestige really than it, as it was to um, to show Mourinho that they that United aren't finished. Uh, we'll talk about Solskjaer a little bit more in just a moment, but. Gregor, just on the subject of getting one over your former boss, mm-hmm. does that happen quite a lot in football? Yeah, it's always extra motivation. <laughs> it depends how it's ended. And as uh, as Thursday was saying, you know, there's a few players who, no matter what they say, would undoubtedly have some kind of bit of needle, of added mm. needle with the return of Mourinho. Um, but I, th- I thought as well that the the crowd. I mean, Thursday might say a bit more. But I thought the crowd played a part in this game. It seemed felt like just watching from home, like it sounded like a, an amazing atmosphere. And, you know, the fans having Mourinho back as well, they kind of recognised that this was a, a bit of an occasion. And Manchester United just overwhelmed them in the first half. I mean, firstly, was the was the atmosphere kind of uh, Old Trafford of old? It, it was, yeah. I, I, it wasn't for the first sort of 90 seconds. You could, you could tell that everyone was thinking, oh, God, we, we might get a pummeling here. Um, but once he saw that United had started well, you know, they really started getting behind them. And that early goal helps, doesn't it? You know, when... When United go ahead, it kind of settles the nerves a little bit, um, and you know, a lot, a lot was made about Jose's return, about the reception that he was going to get, um, and obviously the United fans are a, a gracious lot, the, the match-going ones um, anyway. Um, are. But um, but you know they they all made a point of getting behind Solskjaer as well. You know this wasn't kind of, you know he wasn't going to be the Mourinho show. Um, no matter how much Jose would have secretly wanted that to happen, um, you know the fans really wanted to, you know, show Solskjaer their their support as well. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of the better atmospheres so far this season. Well, Marcus Rashford was named man of the match. Two goals, taking his total for club and country to 15 this season, making the difference in the end. And uh, his manager Solskjaer was full of compliments for his forward. Best performance he's had under me, definitely. Been here now for almost a year and the boys just maturing and maturing and growing with responsibility. We're playing against uh, a good team tonight, Champions League uh, finalists not many months ago. The pressure is on the boys from from outside and he's just uh, produced an excellent performance. So he's going to be a top player and still only 22. Yep, still only 22. Solskjaer says it's his best performance since he took over then for Rashford, as Molly also pointed out a little bit early on. Finding some fantastic form this season. He's been directly involved in 11 goals in his last 10 appearances in all competitions for United, Paul, with nine goals and and two assists. Do you think we're now starting to see the England striker come of age? Yeah, I think so. It's 15 goals for club and country this season in total, which is, you know, he's doing it for England as well as uh, United. He's, he's just finding his. I think that position on the left hand side, where he can cut in on his right, is his best position by far. I mean, when Martial suffered an injury on uh, the day before the game, so you know Solskjaer must have been tempted to put uh, Rashford up front and play, you know, someone else, maybe Pereira or Greenwood on the left. But he stuck to stuck to his guns and kept Rashford on the left hand side and put Greenwood up front as well. I think that was the most important decision that. Um, Solskjaer has made in a while, you know, play play your play Rashford in the best position 
in his best position, his favourite position, and he always, um, you know, he'll always come up trumps for you when he's when the confidence is flowing in him. He, you know, confident he is very very confident at the moment, and that's maybe the the difference between the Rashford that we are seeing now and the one that we saw under Mourinho. Paul, this was a huge win for Manchester United, and coming into this game, there was reports that there was a lot of pressure on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He obviously in his press conferences mentioned there were blatant lies that he only had uh, two games to um, hold on to his job and, and get two wins out of those uh, two games. But do you think this win keeps him out the wheel a little bit longer? It does, yeah. It takes the pressure off him certainly just because, not just because of the result but because of the manner of the performance. You know, this was this was the best United performance I think of the season. You know, Beating Chelsea 4-0 was was impressive, but I think that scoreline flattered them a little bit. I think this Spurs, uh, the, the, the result of Spurs, the performance against Spurs was, was the best one so far this season. Um, it could give them a lot of confidence going to the derby, but you know, Man City, given how they played on Tuesday night against Burnley, are on another level. So I think if United come away from the Etihad on Saturday with a draw, they'll they'll reflect on a, a really good win. So as we said there, there were reports that Solskjaer had two games to save his job. First, it was that Wednesday night one against Spurs. Job done. The second of those then comes this Saturday evening. And as all pointed out, is a huge derby against the blue side of Manchester City. It's a chance for United to close the gap on the top four, but more importantly, a chance for City to close the gap on Liverpool, who are 11 points clear of Pep Guardiola's side. Pep's side were convincing on Tuesday night. It was a 4-1 win away at Burnley, proved that they won't be giving up their title, but it also gave the City boss a chance to show his frustration when he was asked whether the title race is back on because of one win. We talk about the it's not the mindset to, to think about your catch to, to win the next one, next one. So we know the situation that we have. We have to, you know, to score, to win games. And today we were so close. Paul, there are many signs that Guardiola is growing tired at the moment. He's asked whether he's in the title race after every game, win or lose. He's asked whether his future remains in Manchester as well. We've seen high-profile departures already this season with Pochettino and, and Emery leaving their respective clubs. Do you think City are at risk, seriously, of losing Guardiola this summer? You say you know, he's, he's sounding tired. I think he's just tired of speaking to us to be honest he's just, uh, he's just tired of speaking to the media that is the least uh, favourite part of his uh, job by a long stretch mm. Pep he, he just hates speaking to us it's, I don't, well it's, it's not in person I don't think it is anyway um, I hope <laughs> not. But it, you it, need to it, spice it, up your questions Paul <laughs> the other for Christmas <laughs> yeah, I, yeah maybe I should uh, read up more on it um, but yeah he's he just doesn't like speaking to us. He doesn't see it as part of his, you know, his job. His job is going out on the grass, it's coaching, it's sitting on the sidelines, and watching his uh, fantastic team play. I think that's what's annoying him, and and it must be quite grating, really. You know, seeing the same old faces every couple of days, and it is every couple of days uh, at this stage of the season where you've got midweek matches and, and Premier League matches at the weekend as well. Um, so it's getting a bit tiring for him that aspect of the game. I think he's. His zest for for coaching Man City remains. I think he's still he's still you know determined to to stay on and see out uh, his contract. I think if anything, the recent defeats have kind of spurred him on to to stay even you know see out his contract and actually commit himself to the club. I don't, I don't think he's the kind of guy who walks away from. Um, a situation where his team is not doing well. I think ideally he'd like to leave at the end of next season, having 
won the Champions League, won the Premier League again. Um, he's not. He always sees sees out his contract, so I, I, I wouldn't um, uh, bet on him leaving anytime soon. So we shouldn't read any anything into that little slip up in the press conference where he uh, mentioned <laughs> Bayern Munich when he meant to <laughs> refer to Manchester City. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it was a, yeah, a, a, a subconscious kind of thing, but it, it was very funny, wasn't it? Um, particularly when the, the Bayern have been after him, so you know, maybe, mm. maybe it's preying on his mind. Um, maybe he's after a pay rise, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was quite comical, but I think if I was a City fan, I would be a bit worried. Is he in communication with Bayern Munich? But anyway, um, Manchester United's win against Tottenham on Wednesday would have been just the medicine for Solskjaer as he sends his side across the city to take on Guardiola's champions. Who's going to be feeling the greater Derby Day pressure this Saturday, Paul? We still think United. I mean, you look at the two teams and and where they are in the league and, and the quality of both teams. And you, City are still streets ahead of United. Um, at, at times over last year, it's like they've been playing different sports. Um, the, 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 the gap's been that big. Um, so, you know, United will... You know, let's face it. If, if United don't play at their best and City play um, to their uh, capacity, it could be they could give them a good hammering, and then you know it's all the story goes back to Solskjaer and you know whether he's the right man for the for the job again. So, you know, I, like I said earlier, I think if if United get a draw, you know that is that is a, a, a big result for them. Um, and City will probably just go into it expecting to win. So Paul's saying there that the pressure will be on Manchester United because of the pressure that has been building on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Molly, do you agree with that? If you'd have asked me the question, I think I would have said that Guardiola would be under more pressure. Uh-huh. But just because the gap already feels so big, yeah. I think, from Liverpool. And I think what was interesting is, obviously, we'll touch on it later on, but last night Liverpool played so well whilst resting some of their key players. And... You know, that hasn't always been the case at Manchester City. We've seen some of the players they've lost injury have made such a big difference to them and probably part of the reason they've dropped points. And, you know, United, it's almost like a free hit, isn't it? The, even the fans probably, as Paul was saying, they know how big the gap has been at times between the two clubs. They know that on paper, if Manchester City play to the best of their ability, they'll win the game. So it's almost that chance to to go and, and prove them wrong and and if they can have Rashford have a performance like he did on Wednesday night then you wouldn't you mm. wouldn't put it past them to it to at least get a point. Mm. I mean that's the thing as Molly's pointed out it is a derby with a potential for Manchester United looking at it as a free hit because no one is really expecting much from them. Yeah, although they've had a decent record against against mm-hmm. the kind of so-called big big teams in the Premier League. Um I think you know there's pressure on both of them for for different reasons, as we yeah. said, it's Manchester Manchester City. You would think if they don't win, I mean, we keep saying this though. It, the, you know, the gap's getting bigger, and I still don't want to rule them out. Um, but Liverpool just looks so ominous. Um, and Man United, I think you know it's about it's about building on that that display because that was one of the best performances I've, I've seen from Manchester United in quite some time. Actually, they, you know, I, I think Scott McTominay's return. I've kind of sort of belittled the the importance they've. They've placed on Scott McTominay saying, you know, how how can they be reliant so reliant on this guy in, in the centre midfield? Um but he was excellent the other night. And you know, I think there is potential in this team. Manchester United need they I think they need they need experience more than anything now. They need one or two kind of 
wise and old heads to to arrive in in in, uh, in January if possible, and and then there is real potential in the team. Um, still question marks about Solskjaer, of course. Um, and Manchester City, they just they can't afford to can't afford to slip up at all now between well between now and the end of the season. It's just so hard to see, as Molly said. Changes were made by Liverpool, and they just overwhelmed Everton. Mm. With that said, then if they can't afford to slip up, does that therefore mean that there is more pressure on uh, on uh, Pep Guardiola and Manchester City? Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, I think um, it would be so hard to see how. I just, you know, again, we keep saying this every week. <laughs> it's so hard to see if the gap widens any more, any further. Um, how they could, how they can catch up, and at the moment, it's hard to see as well. So. But look, they they have they had um, Jesus back in fire and all cylinders. hadn't scored ten games, scored an absolute cracker and a second as well the other night. So they looked pretty formidable. So um, I'm sure they'll be going into it with with a lot of confidence. The train is now approaching junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It is surely now just a matter of time before Everton put Marco Silva out of his Merseyside misery. Oh, it's a bit harsh. Um, the pressure on the Toffees boss was huge going into Wednesday night's game. That's before you add into the equation a little dose of Liverpool and the first fierce derby of the season. Six first-half goals got the game off to a thunderous start. Second half wasn't quite so impressive, though, as Wijnaldum twisted the knife, scoring the only goal in the second 45 minutes and the game finished 5-2. It was some impressive football that we saw last night, in particular f- from Liverpool. And Molly, you mentioned earlier on how Jurgen Klopp made loads of changes, what, five five or so changes? And yet they were still fantastic. And there's been a lot of question marks perhaps over the strength and depth of Liverpool. But last night it showed they had plenty. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people have have spoken about that front three and thought if one of those gets injured, maybe it'll be the same sort of effect as Laporte getting injured for Manchester City mm. and that Liverpool will inevitably drop points. Now, we know they've got the Club World Cup and the League Cup this month um, and going into next month and there's going to be a lot of fixtures and Klopp is going to have to use that squad. And I think what was really impressive is... You look at Divock Origi, Jordan Shaqiri, Adam Lallana, just three I picked out last night that I thought did really, really well when they came in. 
And actually, you look at the culture around the club right now, everyone must be on cloud nine. They've got the, the lead at the top of the league. They know how much that means. I think Shakiri said after the game how much they know that that means to the fans and Merseyside. And I think, actually, it, it made a big difference. It's like everyone wants to be part of this team. They're all going in the right direction. They've got that confidence now that regardless of who is on the pitch, they will score goals. Mm. Um and they were just really impressive from from the from the whistle, really. I mean, even in the second half, there were a couple of chances for Keane when he came on for Everton. But it was just the confidence. Everything seems to be falling Liverpool's way, and and I guess that's the exact opposite of what's what's going on for Everton at the moment. I think I think Molly's hit the nail on the head there. One of the hardest things in football is to keep the players who are not in the team happy, and Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp do that better than anyone. These guys came in and. They were outstanding. Um, what a game, you know. The, the the speed with which Liverpool get from front to front to back, from sort of in their own penalty box to scoring a goal is just like breathtaking. The kind of the sw- that switch of play from Trent Alexander Arnold. Again, I'm gonna have to use that word swoon. Every time he plays that pass, I'm just like wow. <laughs> and uh, and then Manny's kind of two two little assists. Oh, These passes yeah. they were beautiful as well. And just the speed of the on the break as well. Um, I think Manny's got to be kind of in the talking for player of the year really this season. He's been remarkable. He's been the most consistent and the most effective player in that from that front three of Liverpool's. They kind of seem to take it year about. <laughs> you know, Salas, it's hard to say he's, he's had a dip, but uh, Manny's the one who's mm. been the sort of most impressive this year. Yeah. And yeah, Liverpool were kind of were unstoppable really at times. It was Jürgen Klopp's 100th Premier League victory. He is the second fastest manager to reach a century in the competition. And it also extends Liverpool's run of 32 matches without defeat, which is their longest such run in top flight history. What is incredible about Liverpool as well, as we've we've spoken before on this pod about they continue to concede, but you concede too, don't worry, we're going to score five the other end. (laughs) They are prolific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I say, the way some of those breaks, the one where Trent Alexander-Arnold just, just haired up the pitch and just bided his time until he had to lay it off to to Manny at the perfect time and he finished. It was just just brilliant. Um, and I think, you know, that unbeaten run in 32 games, that's it's remarkable. The kind of Klopp is is kind of breaking new ground as manager of Liverpool. He's, he's been he's been absolutely magnificent for them and it really is hard to see how how they're going to get stopped. Well, let's bring in the times of Jonathan Norcroft to, to speak a little bit more perhaps on the future of Marco Silva and, and focus on Everton because this was a, yet another defeat for them after a, this seven-goal thriller that we witnessed at, at Anfield. Uh, and Jonathan, the pressure continues to build on Marco Silva. At the time of the recording, he remains the Everton manager, but his side have now dropped into the bottom three. It's surely a matter of when rather than if, isn't it? You know, as you say, Natalie, they're in the bottom three. But this is a club that <clears throat> set out to to qualify for Europe this year, that spent about £470 million since Mashiri took over, that spent another vast tranche of money in the in the transfer market this summer. And, you know, a, a team that is getting worse rather than better, a squad that, that looks like a sort of jumble of, 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 you know, players who individually are OK, but together they don't really fit. And Marco Silva is not the only problem at Everton, but he looks like he will be the the one that pays the price for um, these endemic failures. Um, I feel sorry for him 
uh, in the sense that he looks like a decent man trying his best, but he hasn't done well enough. Um, he's not the only problem, but I guess he's the easiest one to fix. You know, I, when I watched the game last night, I was impressed with about 34 minutes on the clock. He decided to make a change. It was obviously an obvious tactical change. Mm. Things weren't going right. So he was he was desperate to make things work for Everton. Unfortunately, mm. it didn't in the end. And, and Jonathan, Chelsea, Manchester United, Leicester, Arsenal, that's Everton's run up to Christmas. It's a really hard time of the year for, for football anyway. If they were to make the decision to, to remove him from his post... Who on mm. earth would want to take the job on? It's interesting. I think managers think differently to to us. Um, <laughs> I was going to say mere mortals, but maybe normal people would be a better way. To, <laughs> you need to be a little bit mad to be a manager. I mean, I, I, I think any manager who wants that job, and it's still a great job, it's a great club, and there is you know there's something to work with there despite the mess. I think any manager would just want to get cracking and back themselves to... To, to maybe do something in, in that short period. It, it, it's actually a sign of how quickly things have gone wrong that they're looking at making the change now because with that run of fixtures, there was a, there was a thought a few weeks ago that the best thing would be to at least keep Silva in place and then reassess the options um, after that, i.e. You know, maybe even let him take the hit in those fixtures. But things have got so bad so quickly. They now are in the bottom three. At the end of that run of games, whoever's in charge, they could be, you know, in in, in serious serious trouble. That it, it kind of almost makes no difference whether someone arrives or not. So as I say, a new manager would just want to get in, get cracking, and and, and start working as as quickly as possible. Mm. And Gregor Jonathan mentioned there that you know you can't lay all the blame at Marco Silva. There are a lot of people involved in this situation at Everton. You, you have uh, Marcel Brands, you, obviously you have Mashiri and, and and everyone else involved as well. But inevitably, it is always the manager that gets the chop first. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, Johnny's hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of, it's not Silva's fault entirely. Um, and you can't even say, you know, Mashiri's has put his money where, he, where his kind of yeah. mouth is. He's, he's tried his best. It's mm. just been a bit of a muddled approach. They threw so much money at it when he first arrived and spent a lot of it badly. I know there seems to be sort of varying agendas between Moshiri, Kenwright and and uh, Marcel Brands and and Silva over kind of recruitment and, and the direction the club should be taking now. So, But there are things about Silva that you really can't ignore. Um, I don't think they've ever come from behind to win a game under him mm-hmm. at Everton. And that kind of persistent problem with set pieces. They... There's, I think only Aston Villa have conceded more set pieces from set pieces this year, and last season they conceded the most, 16. Uh, and that he's, he also that kind of followed them at Hull City and, and Watford as well. Um, so there's this sort of underlying feeling that maybe there's a bit of a, I don't know, a soft centre or, or just not quite the kind of metal mm. in Everton in Everton side. And some of that's to do with recruitment, but some of that is perhaps to do with the man in the dugout as well. Jonathan, you wrote a piece on on Everton, I think, early in November, where you mentioned something like 35 department (laughs) heads are at the club. It seems as though there are a lot of um, leaders, shall we say, Mm. but yet maybe we don't quite know who's making all these decisions. No, I mean, it's actually baffling looking at the modern Everton um, when... You, you remember what they used to be like. I, you know, I've covered Everton since 2001, since I, I started working in England, and it was one of the clubs I've, I've covered most most closely. And you know, I go back to Belfield, very sort of humble training ground, 
Um, I remember David Ginola being unveiled in a porter cabin, looking completely kind of baffled as to what he, what he was doing there. But it was so humble. It was so small scale. You know, he had like a sort of schoolboy Wayne Rooney, um, you know, kicking the ball about on, 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 on the sort of one training pitch they had and, you know, sort of doing the crossbar challenge with senior pros like David Weir looking aghast. And I don't want to be all jumpers for goalposts, but there was a, there was a, a sort of real tightness about Everton then, a real underdog feeling that, yes, they weren't the rich club, but they were a very sort of small band of, 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 of people that were important to that club and a, and a humility there and and you know that was a sustaining um, principle when it was Moyes and Kenwright pretty much running the show and and now you look at it it's this great big sort of fattened organisation that's had loads of money spent on it it's got this vast squad of you know as I say sort of players that just confuse you I look at the squad and I can't think you know who who, who are the first choices who are the subs who are the who are the good players here who are the the players you need to move on I mean it. The, the, the sort of collecting heads of department is, is similar to the way they've just collected footballers. And, and whatever happens now, I think they they need to to find somebody that's going to unify the club, streamline the whole thing. You know, they do need a the manager, whoever it is, to, to have a strength about them, to, to give them the vision, because the vision hasn't come from the top. And Gregor rightly mentions the, the sort of recruitment policy. I'd, I'd recommend anyone reads Paul Joyce's piece today that he's published on, on, on Times Online because it, it's a fascinating account of how this summer's transfer window kind of just spiralled out of out of control when they'd set out to to actually, you know, prune the squad and, and keep things tight and not do too much. And then it ends up with them, you know, signing Alex Awobi, you know, Moise Keane and Gabamin on, on deadline day almost sort of through panic and that's another £120 million down the drain. And that's that's been the case under Mashiri. It's, it, it, they're just accumulating things, whether it's players, whether it's department heads, you know, wh- wh- whatever it is. It, it, it's it's somebody who's trying, he's trying to put money in to to, to make a difference, but it's, it, there's no clear direction to it. And mm-hmm. the biggest thing that has to come out of this is 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 Everton regaining a sense of direction and identity that they used to make them such a a, a sort of such a great proposition despite the lack of money you know they they were actually better when they had no money it's quite incredible because in that piece that i I mentioned that you wrote last month you you mentioned that it's a squad put together by five managers Mm. i mean Mm. it's incredible to think that that is what everton are are dealing with right now but if they are yeah. to make a change as well, this will be their fifth boss since February 2016. You've had David Unsworth in there twice, Ronald Koeman, mm-hmm. Sam Allardyce, Marco Silva. Let's obviously face it, Koeman and Allardyce, big names when it comes to the, to the managerial world. So why are they not making a success of it? I know, and you look, Koeman, what a great job he's doing with Holland now. Mm. You know, Roberto Martin is number one in the world with Belgium. It's it's not like you know Big Sam does what he does very successfully. It's not like they've had bad managers. I'd I'd, I'd suggest that Silva's probably the worst of the group, but it's not like they've had bad managers. It's it's the mess. It's a mess, and it's the it's a lack of direction. That's what's killing them. You know, the, beyond Leighton Baines and Coleman, the the, the longest serving players, Umar Nias. That's that's frightening that he's actually still at the club. You know, and he's another player that came in in a January transfer window when they were panicking. Um, too many signings get made at the last minute. Um, you know, too many things are reactive. Too many things happen because you know an agent puts a word in, or or, or someone has a, a has a different agenda that that doesn't sort of fit with a, an overwhelming vision. Maybe a bit like the Man United situation 
or Arsenal, at some point you've got to look at it and say it's not an individual or an individual decision that's a problem. It's a whole mess. It's a whole picture. And the only way out is to provide a, a clear vision. Molly, Marco Silva was given the resources at Everton. We know he spent hundreds of millions of pounds. Spent the money, signed the stars that he wanted. Uh, he got the job off the back of his employment at Hull and then Watford. But is Silva actually a bit of a myth? Why, why were Everton, for example, when he was at Watford, they were so keen to get him. Yet we hadn't really seen much success at Watford. We hadn't really seen his success at Hull. So is he a myth? I think both both at Hull and Watford, you, you kind of watched the team and at times they were really, really good. And then they just sort of went into a lull and never mm. kind of quite got out of it. And I don't think there's really been a moment where, you know, you look at his predecessors that, that are very good managers and have proven that through the ups and downs they've kind of managed to get out of it and I don't think he really has and you you look at that Everton side last night and they just didn't look like they had anything more to give like they were they're, they're not a sum of their collective parts at all mm-hmm. um and yeah they just it just felt like he was kind of running out of ideas I mean against Leicester at the weekend, I just never felt so sorry for a manager. Um, when that VAR goal went in, you just looked it in his face and you just thought, he, he just he has nothing. Like, what 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 can he do at this point? Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's hard to see him staying there. But, you know, as the lads have said, I think the problem are still going to be there for whoever comes in. And it, it kind of needs a complete real rebuild, really, because, you know, we've seen so many teams now, you can put money into a club... And you can buy players, but actually you need a plan that's consistent and that, that's that's where Everton are lacking. James Gilbrandt wrote a really good piece about Silva a few weeks ago. It was kind of he was almost asking how do you measure how effective a manager is and he's a kind of prime example of because there's so much noise around the football mm. clubs and he came into one that was real battling rele- battling relegation. He was really patchy at Watford. Um and even last you know, at the end of last season, they got five wins and six clean sheets in the last eight games. They mm. beat Chelsea, Arsenal, Man United, that there was some, they finished the season with real hope, you know? And then all of a sudden, mm. <laughs> we're in this situation again. Yeah. And this is what he's be, he'd be such a patchy kind of manager. And people speak about his qualities. They say he's, he's eye for detail and training ground. He's man management, even. There's, you know, he's, he has a lot of strengths, but he mm. clearly has so many weaknesses that are, that are letting him down as well. Or that's, that seems to be the case. And he's mm. in working for clubs that have underlying problems as well. Jonathan, do you think if he was to lose his job at Everton that we'll ever see him working in England again? Yeah, I, I hate to say this, but I, I don't think he's done enough to, to deserve another Premier League job. Um, <clears throat> he does have qualities. Um, you know, he, you speak to players who've worked with him and they say he's very good one-on-one coaching and he really has, you know, sort of detailed view of the game, but it just doesn't all fit together. Um, he... He looks, he looks apart. I just don't think he's, he's sort of delivered on it. And and I, I, I would be surprised. I mean, he's taken Hull down. He had a great start at Watford, but it, it became disastrous. Actually, they were they were facing relegation when, mm. when when he ended up leaving. And it just hasn't, you know, he hasn't hasn't made a good fist of Everton. You can't you can't get around that. I, I hate to sort of kick a man while he's down, and I felt really sorry for him too. You know, like, like Molly did, but. I don't know. You know, this is a this is the richest league in the world. Blah blah blah. And I think to to get a job there, you 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 know, you should be an elite manager. And I'm not sure he's done enough. 
So as another decade draws to a close, many are drawing up their team of the decade. Here on The Game Podcast, we're no different, and we're lucky to have Molly Hudson here with us in the studio, who this week has picked her women's football team of the decade. In a year that's seen the women's game grow astronomically, crowds over 70,000 right here in England, the creation of a professional league and even a class of 92 Champions League winner guiding the Lionesses to a World Cup semi-final, things are looking very promising. And Molly, in your piece, which people can find on the Times website, you wrote the 11 chosen are those that have made the biggest impact in the top level of women's football, but many others are the heartbeat of the grassroots community. They've got so many of our most recognisable names into the game. So let's hear it. Your team of the decade. OK, so the the people I picked, it was really important that not only did they play in, you know, some of them have played, some of them haven't, but it's more the influence that they've put on the women's game and how it's come out of the decade. Okay. So um, my manager is Karen Hills, who's currently the joint manager at Tottenham. Um, and she's taken the team literally through the dec- decade after joining in 2007 and turning them into pro- a professional outfit. Um, as a goalkeeper, safe hands for the women's game, it's Kelly Simmons. Uh, she's the FA director of the women's professional game. Um, as has been a huge driving force in everything that's that's made the day the game good really and everything that's continuing to be done um at right back it's Alex Scott not only one of the best right backs that England has ever produced but also an incredible pundit that's that's paved the way for more women in the media industry um at center back it's Jen O'Neill um may not be as familiar to the viewers but she's the magazine editor of she kicks has done a huge amount covering the game when there wasn't as much media attention and also played with the likes of uh, Steph Horton at Sunderland. Mm. Um, and there we go, Steph Horton. You couldn't have an England eleven without the current captain and you know what she's done on and off the pitch for England is incredible and she's a, a leader in everything you, you think about England, really. Um, left back is Sally Horrocks. So she was a former FA consultant and uh, was a key figure in the creation of the then new Women's Super League in 2011. Obviously, we've we've changed several parts of the league now, but that was a that was a big step back then having having that league. Um, in right midfield, it's Rebecca Welsh, um, refereeing representative in the lineup. It's quite incredible that she still works full time in the NHS and then referees in the Women's Super League for 120 pound a game, um, and that's one of the areas that we look at as something we need to drive forward. That actually the referees still aren't professional mm. obviously someone like Sean Massielis has done done a lot for female officiating but you know in terms of officials that are still part-time Rebecca's gone a huge um huge step in the right direction center midfield it's Hope Powell again you, you'd struggle to have a an influence influential 11 without her in it done so much for England and now obviously with Brighton in the Women's Super League then we've got Phil Neville Obviously, the current uh, women's slightly manager. controversial. We'll talk about that one in just a moment. Um, yeah, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, in left midfield, it's Frank Kirby again, one of the best players of the decade, but also um, has been vocal on mental health and the fact that she lost her mum when she was very young, and has been really open in talking about that and inspiring the, the next generation, and that we can talk about mental health. Um, and then in my four four two formation, mm-hmm. the two strikers are Rachel Pavlo, who is the FA Women's Football Development National Manager. She does a lot for the game at grassroots. 
and England players such as Karen Carney have praised the impact she had on them when they were young. Um, and then finally, it's Emma Hayes, Chelsea women's manager, and has just done so much for the game. Consistent force in pushing it forward and uh, a woman in football that consistently fights for it in the boardroom and on the pitch. I love it. Love your 11 that you've gone for. But please tell us about Phil Neville. How is he in there? <laughs> um, do you know what? I think for me, the fact that Phil Neville is even in women's football shows how far we've progressed from in this decade. If you look at the start of that decade and, you know, players were still in full-time jobs, didn't really have TV coverage or media coverage. The, the idea that we'd even be talking about this for a, a national newspaper just wouldn't really have existed. Mm. And the fact that, that he's come into the game and undoubtedly people have watched women's football because Phil Neville is England manager, you can't deny that. What Whatever you think about Phil and his team, the way they've played recently, the, the fact that he even got the job, he has opened up women's football to an audience that wasn't previously there. And off the back of that, we've seen consistently high crowds and we see you know the lionesses at the world cup with millions and millions watching them and that isn't solely down to him but i think he has been the figurehead of that and again he's been really supportive of women's sport and he grew up in a family with obviously his sister tracy he was such a good netballer and netball coach that he he's never saw sport as a as a men's um a men's job he's seen it as just sport and i think he's really brought that into the role with him yeah I get that. I get that. With Phil Neville thinking, you know, I want to get into management and I want to do it in the women's game just shows how far, as you say, the women's game has, has come. Uh, Alex Scott, obviously, um, I can see how well, you mentioned the pioneering work she's now doing in broadcasting as well. That's fantastic. And Steph Horton, the leader of the Lionesses. Um, when you think also about her personal life and what's been going on most recently, the fact that she is able to just still continue to play week in, week out for Manchester City as well as the Lionesses when called upon it. Simply fantastic. Rebecca Welch, tell me about this again. So she works full-time for the NHS, referees for £120 a, a game. Yeah, so um, for people that don't know, the current officiating standard in women's football, particularly the Super League, is equivalent to men's National League. Right. So that's basically the minimum requirement. Um now, because of that, obviously, you don't have to be a professional referee. Um, she works in the NHS. She she also referees in the National League. Obviously, the the income isn't a huge amount at all, as I say, £120 a game for Women's Super League. And I think it's pretty similar for the, the Men's National League. Right. Um, and it's kind of the step that the FA and, you know, Emma Hayes has been vocal about it, that this is actually going into the next decade. This is what we want to achieve. We want professional referees because... It's really difficult because Rebecca herself, and actually she's probably one of the better referees, she's the highest qualified female English referee in the country, but they get a lot of criticism, and understandably, because this game has progressed at such a rate. Mm. The players are professional, but the referees haven't. The referees are just expected to do the same things as before, and I think that's really difficult for us to expect. And Yes, we do criticise them, and the managers criticise them, but at some point you have to give something back to them Mm. to make it a more attractive proposition to, to referee in the division. Yeah, and and if we want the women's game to be taken seriously, you, you do want the officials to be treated exactly as they are in the men's game, especially in the top four divisions. You want them to be professional and, and to catch up with the men's game in that respect. Um, I'm guessing there were a lot of omissions that you, you found difficult to, you know, not put people into your 11 as well. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking off Ellen White, 
Casey Stoney, for example? It's difficult because obviously we kind of want to move away from the traditional best 11 that you'd have all seen of, you know, the best, just the best players. Yeah. But at the same time, some of the best players have done so much for the game by being recognisable and having that public profile that it was difficult. And again, it's at times it's really hard to balance from the start of the decade how much it meant that the players did what they did back then because there wasn't really coverage of it and they probably weren't getting the recognition that they deserve if if they were doing what they were then now um so that made it really difficult to pick i guess so that is your team of the decade what do you think the next aim for the next 10 years will be for the women's game i think it has to be more consistency i think what we've seen is this massive upward trajectory and we've seen all the positives and we've almost seen the utopia of women's football with 77,000 at Wembley and a new WSL record at the new Tottenham Stadium and we've seen everything that it could be but we're not there yet and I think it's important that that isn't seen as as where we're at because we're not you know we're still getting if we're lucky two three four thousand at WSL games and that's the attendance that needs to rise rather than these one-off games in men's stadiums. So I think it's consistency and it's building on this because I would like to think that there's no going back now. This It's only going to get better from here, which is a really exciting prospect. So it's difficult to put your, your 11 together. What about the moment that you could say stands out for you in this decade that we've had? I was thinking about this and for me, it, it sounds negative, but it was Laura Bassett's own goal in the 2015 excuse me what in the 2015 <laughs> world cup hear me out for my explanation um so we was watching it in the early hours of the morning you know it was it was 6 years ago i was like 15 watching it and thinking actually this is the same old england disappointment that i've got from watching men's football and in a strange kind of way we were the better team in that game and that moment that everyone remembers is almost the one that pushed it forward because if that hadn't have happened, you know, quite possibly we, we could have won the World Cup, we could have got to a World Cup final. Either way, we'd got to a point where we talk a lot about a tipping point. I actually think, looking back, that that probably was the tipping point because off the back of that, obviously, what happened with Mark Sampson happened and he left and then Phil Neville came in and it, it's just been from that moment, it really broke it into the mainstream because it was such a story mm. that it was such a heartbreaking own goal. Um, and yeah, it was just devastating. So Gregor, an own goal. You see all the negatives you've had in your career, you can now look at that highlight, a tipping point, if there were <laughs> any negatives in your career. Oh God, there were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things, on the few occasions I've covered the women's game one of the things that's always held up as a kind of one of the most uh, admirable things about it and a key thing is the kind of approachability of the players and the proximity you know it feels like kind of much closer bond between the supporters and the players how as the game grows and develops and gets bigger and bigger how can that be maintained can it be maintained I think it's one of the biggest fears for women's football as it's grown I think as journalists we've asked the FA this you know, what is it you're going to keep? Because this is the core of women's football, as you say. That's that's part of the reason a lot of the fans that have followed it probably through the decade when it didn't have so much coverage, that was part of the reason they loved it. But actually, you look at that um, North London derby at the new stadium, 
And the Spurs players were waiting like an hour after the game to, to sign autographs. And I think actually we're really lucky with some of the players that we have in the game that they're willing to to spend their time in that way. Where now probably in men's football you just don't have that for various reasons. Um, and I think to be honest, if if you can keep these players in the game, then that that is the culture, and you would hope that that's ingrained in women's football so that it won't change. Um, It'll, it'll be harder, of course. It'll take up more time and the players now have less time less time to kind of dedicate to that. But I think hopefully a lot of these players remember where they started and that's what's different. You know, in men's football, pretty much every player has, has known men's football as a professional sport their, their entire career, whereas the players coming through now, even if someone like Georgia Stanway at Manchester City has been a professional footballer all her career... She's playing with people that haven't and she she's taught, you know, how to be in, in the culture. So hopefully that stays, but it's something that we need to make sure stays because you're right, it is what defines women's football. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests, Molly Hudson, Paul Hurst and Jonathan Norcroft. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And we'll be back on Monday after the Manchester Derby and more. game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk as you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.